Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North on this Wednesday, July 19th. This is the continued week of proof of life. I was actually at my favorite little coffee shop this morning and I was picking up a, a few things. And the owner, who's a, a very, very lovely man, he and his sister, which own this uh, great business in life. I don't want to name the business because I'm worried that then like all the trolls will descend on them. So uh, if you guys want the shout out, let me know and I'll give you the shout out. But uh, he was like a bit worried that I had been away for two weeks and he had uh, thought like some other people that something had happened. No, I'm still here. I'm still alive. I don't have anything either with a date on it to hold up. I have an Air Canada meal voucher from a, a canceled flight. What's the, the date on that? That's uh, No, that, that's from June 8th, so that doesn't actually give me uh, proof of life. So uh, you just have to take my word for it when I say it is July 19th, and I am here and alive, and uh, according to my Apple Watch, my uh, I'm not even wearing my So even the Apple Watch can't give me proof of life. My goodness, this is just a, a great intro to hopefully a show uh, that can only go up from here. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit later on in the program about the one province that seems to be clinging to its vaccine mandate more than anywhere else. And if you live in British Columbia, you know I am talking about you, but it is in fact BC, which still has a horrendous vaccine mandate in place for its healthcare workers. Now, I should say, it's not the only mandate remaining. There are little pockets of this. There's actually a, a township uh, not far from me in southwestern Ontario that has one as well. But uh, BC is one of the most sweeping, I'd say. And despite the fact that the healthcare system is across the country still suffering from gaps in employment because they can't seem to find people, perhaps they shouldn't have fired all the nurses and other workers that they needed. But I also want to talk a little bit about this strange discourse that's taken hold online in which the so-called experts, in this case the Laurentian elites, have a very different view of Canadian democracy compared to ordinary Canadians. And I'm going to try to not get too into the weeds here, but it's an important discussion because we have in Canada a Westminster parliamentary system, which means, uh, in effect, that elections are not the sole determinant or technically not the determinant at all of who becomes prime minister. It is the composition of the House of Commons that decides that. There is no technical role for the prime minister as a byproduct of Canadian elections. So theoretically, all of the members of parliament could be elected and the MPs could get there on the first day and say, you know, we, we think uh, Cheryl Gallant should be prime minister. Not Justin Trudeau, not Pierre Polyev, Cheryl Gallant. They could say, oh, uh, Nikki Ashton. Yeah, the NDP MP Nikki Ashton. She's the, she's the prime minister. Now, are they going to do either of these things? No. But technically, members of parliament could do that. Now, this is something that we know exists. We know there are non-confidence motions. We know that parliamentarians can get together and oust a prime minister, as a lot of people have been desperately hoping Jugmeet Singh will find a spine to do with Justin Trudeau, but no such luck. That spinal transplant must be way down the list on uh, the waiting list on healthcare procedures. It's British Columbia. They can't find any nurses to give Jagmeet Singh his spinal transplant. So he's just limping around there, like flopping over. Uh, hopefully one day he'll be able to stand erect, but hasn't happened yet. The reason I bring all of this up is because Andrew Coyne, it's always Andrew Coyne on this issue, by the way. This is like one of his number one go-to issues. 
Andrew Coyne wrote a column a few weeks ago in which he stated what is technically a correct point. It, it is a technically correct point based on the, the letter of the law and the unwritten convention that there is a coming crisis of legitimacy in federal politics. That's not the one. That's not the one. That's the one he wrote yesterday, which is I'll get to in a second here. But I bring this up because he was saying that you could lose the election and continue to govern, that Justin Trudeau could lose the election to the conservatives and say, you know what, uh, the NDP is going to keep backing us, uh, so we're just going to keep on going. And this is something that the Laurentian elite think is an entirely appropriate course of action because it fits the letter of what is constitutional in Canada. Philip uh, Lag Philippe Lagasse, who's a, again, a, I, I have no issues with Philippe, but he is like the most um, like technical guy when it comes to his analysis. And, and he's very right. He knows his stuff. But he writes this piece in the line, ultimately, the confidence convention is all that matters. So it's not about elections. It's not about what we think is legitimate. This is all that matters, that you have to command the confidence of the House. And if you do that, you're still there. Why this is so important is because what the experts are talking about is miles away from what any ordinary Canadian would think about this if you were to ask them. A Canadian would think that when they go to the polls, when they cast a ballot in an election, that that means something. And that when they vote for the local conservative or the local liberal or the local PPC or the local bloc, that they're actually voting for the person they think is going to be prime minister. Even though Justin Trudeau's name is not on the ballot in London West or AS is a real riding name, uh, they still know that the stakes of the election are such that they're voting for or against candidates that are in the running for prime minister. So when people come along and start to tell people that actually your votes don't matter, it is causing a significant problem. And I'm fully on board with the idea that I, I don't actually think there is such a thing as a conservative minority government for the foreseeable future. I, I think that Pierre Polyev, as the most viable challenger to Justin Trudeau, needs to win a majority or he's not going to get a chance to govern. Now, does this mean the election has been stolen? I would say it's a tricky claim because technically there is nothing preventing Justin Trudeau from doing exactly what Andrew Coyne and Philippe Lagasse are talking about, losing the election and saying, you know, and this is, again, assuming that the Conservatives were to win a, a minority, uh, a plurality, but not a majority. Uh, them saying, you know, Jagmeet Singh, uh, he's going to keep us in business, and maybe the Bloc Québécois, we bring them on board as well, and we're just going to not allow the Conservatives to do anything. A few years ago, when I think it was the 2015 election, Stephen Harper was doing an interview, and he mentioned a nonchalant point uh, that I think most Canadians would agree with. He said, you know, if I cease to, if I don't win the election, if I don't win the most seats, I will cease to be prime minister. And what he was saying is that if he doesn't win he is not going to keep around. He's not going to stay around. He's not going to try to cling to power. And you had a lot of these same people, particularly Andrew Coyne at the time, talking about this as though Harper was spreading misinformation that, oh, no, no, he absolutely could continue being prime minister after losing the election. And this is not how Canadians view our system. So, yeah, there are many different ways in which I could imagine this happening. 
But I, I'm very much on board with what Ginny Roth wrote in The Hub. And we tried to get Ginny on the show today, but she was uh, on holiday, so couldn't join us. Uh, and she says, in the minds of Canadians, the party with the most seats win the election. That's that. So if you want to talk about all these different scenarios in which Justin Trudeau or the Liberals could remain in power, you are going to have a crisis on your hand because Canadians who do not care about the intricacies of the Constitutional Convention or the Confidence Convention are going to see a guy who lost the election using these antiquated tricks to stay in power. And while it won't be illegal, there is no way whatsoever that such a thing would be legitimate. And I think it's actually very concerning and probably very revealing that we have so many different so-called experts that seem invested in this narrative that are piping up now when there could be an election in the coming months or in the coming year and a half, two years. All these experts that are talking about all these scenarios that will conveniently keep Justin Trudeau or his successor in power. And, and by the way, I mean, Justin Trudeau is not a popular figure right now. He, he just isn't. You look at the polls, he's not a popular guy. So I don't think the NDP would keep Trudeau personally in power. I think if anything like this were to happen, it would have to be contingent on someone else. They'd say, okay, we'll back the liberals, but Justin Trudeau's got to go. And ideally, the NDP will manage to find, you know, something that they can claim has been a concession. Because uh, this is the problem, is that, like, Jagmeet Singh will go into a room with Justin Trudeau and say, okay, I'll make you a deal. I'll keep you in power. And then Trudeau is just, like, sitting there waiting for the, but you have to do X, and it never comes. And then Jagmeet Singh leaves the room and does his little dance and says, oh, yeah, we, we won. It's great. Uh, it's like, if you ever saw that old episode of Seinfeld when uh, <laughs> Kramer was trying to get the settlement from the coffee company, they were about to offer him a lifetime supply of free coffee and a big fat check, and he said, I'll take it before they announced that they were going to give him money. That's Jagmeet Singh. He is the Cosmo Kramer of Canadian politics, except Singh didn't even get the lifetime supply of free coffee. He actually gets nothing and keeps Justin Trudeau in power. So there's a, there's a visual for you. Kramer, uh, Jugmeet, Jugmeet Kramer, Cosmo Singh will uh, try to find a little way to make the meme work. But uh, that's effectively what's happening in Canadian politics. So when you hear this discussion, be very concerned and very aware of what it's heading towards. There are people that are trying to start right now crafting a narrative in which the liberals get to govern virtually indefinitely, even if they lose the election. And I think if you're the conservatives, you need to stress this point that, listen, this is what these other guys are trying to do. The only way you're going to be guaranteed to get rid of Justin Trudeau is if you elect a conservative majority government. Now, I'm not a partisan. I, I don't like Trudeau, uh, but I am not invested in one particular party. I'm merely offering some unsolicited advice here to the conservatives that that's the narrative they need to put. Now, Stephen Harper did this. Because they saw in 2008 when the Liberals, the Bloc, and the NDP tried to make that unholy alliance with that weird three-way handshake uh, in which they were basically trying to overturn the results of the 2008 election. And it didn't work. It didn't work. Stephen Harper, I mean, talk about uh, constitutional tricks. He used prorogation, which the folks that were trying to launch a reversal of the election dared to say was tantamount to an authoritarian power grab. So this is the type of stuff that's happening here. So uh, be very wary of what the government is going to do 
if it comes down to it and they need to cling to power. And, and to go back to Jenny Ross's point, uh, the Liberals know that they can't just say, well, it's technically constitutional. They'll need to offer people a little bit more. But my message to all the experts on this is that you can't just cling to what is technically valid, what is technically lawful, what is technically compliant with the Constitution while ignoring the fundamental question, the most fundamental question that is facing governments in democratic nations or supposedly democratic nations, and that is, is the government legitimate? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And I don't mean legitimate as in, do you agree with its policies? I, I mean legitimate in the, does the government have the consent of the governed? Does the government have legitimacy in the eyes of the people? Because again, I can say, all right, the guy I didn't vote for won, but that is still the legitimate government of the country. People are not going to view a liberal government that continues governing after losing an election as being legitimate. And that is how, I mean, all the, the commentators in the media in Canada love to say that the Freedom Convoy was our January 6th incident, that it was our January 6th. And I, I mean, setting aside how dishonest a lot of the media's interpretations of January 6th has been, uh, this would be a January 6th incident. You're going to, incident, I can't say the word incident now. This would be a January 6th incident. Uh, I used to actually, believe it or not, have a lisp, and I had to do speech therapy as a child, and I was good for like, you know, the last 30 years, and then it just all of a sudden came back when I tried to say sixth and incident back to back. That was what broke it. That was what fried the brain. Uh, <laughs> that makes me as effective a speaker as Jagmeet Singh is a leader, evidently. But all of this is to say that we are going to have, when the next election comes, a very critical question, which is, is the result going to be the result? And Canadians are, especially those who are only occasional observers of politics, Canadians are going to have some very big and very uncomfortable questions if they vote for an outcome that is not respected by the people in the halls of power. Uh, that is it for this, but do let me know what you think in the comments on this. And again, I, I am okay with pedantry. I'm okay with saying the well actually uh, thing, and I'm okay with going, well, well, the letter of the law says this. But I, I'm talking about the bigger question here of what it will translate to to voters and what it will translate to to Canadians. And if, you're, if you have the letter of the law on your side, if you have the Constitution on your side, but no one's respecting it, well, that piece of paper isn't really doing anything for you. And that's the point about which I am trying to warn people. Because again, sometimes what's on paper doesn't translate to reality. Uh, this one here is great. Uh, Christian Freeland was bragging on Twitter uh, that we get that inflation is the lowest in two years. She says, oh yes, inflation is the lowest it's been in two years and within the Bank of Canada's target range. And now it's lower than in any other G7 country. So uh, to use uh, Christian Freeland's old measure for belt tightening, this means we can all buy our Disney Plus subscriptions back once again. So if you cancel Disney Plus to deal with inflation, now is the time that you can actually get your Disney Plus 
subscription back. So you can start binging on Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and the CGI reboots thereof because Christian Freeland says inflation's at an all-time low. Well, take a look around your grocery store. When you are paying $8, $9 for butter, when eggs continue to be a luxury item, when you can't really afford to churn through all the milk that you normally would to keep your family milked up. I don't, uh, I don't know how many, I used to always have the milk growing up. I don't know if that's still what families are drinking or if everything's all like organic, uh, vegan soy, almond chai or something. But uh, nevertheless, I bet the organic vegan almond soy chai is going up with inflation as well. So when the finance minister says, oh, well, everything's at a two-year low. Uh, that has not translated to the pricing that you see on grocery store shelves. And as Adam Chambers, the conservative MP, noted on Twitter, a lot of this is about the separation of the technical economy from the real economy, the financial economy from the real economy. As you see, the volatility of energy prices notably cause things to go up and down, up and down, uh, when for Canadians, they're just continuing to go up and up. So uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more next week on the show. I want to talk about British Columbia here, because this every time I talk about the post-pandemic era, or I talk about restrictions and mandates in the past tense, I always get a few emails very kind, thoughtful emails from people in British Columbia saying, well, you know, hate to break it to you, but it hasn't really ended here. And this is true. Uh, British Columbia, for a lot of the pandemic, was one of the best provinces for not locking down, for keeping businesses open but not perfect. They still had the vaccine passport. And it has also been the most stubborn when it's come to the vaccine mandates, especially as they pertain to healthcare workers. So as we see now, BC is still holding to its vaccine mandate for healthcare workers, but they've said that no longer do you need to provide the proof to, uh, of your vaccination status to your regulatory colleges. In fact, there's actually been a bit of a, a disconnect in how some people were reading this report originally and how it is now. And, and ultimately, I, I want to get to the bottom of this and talk about uh, some of the legal challenges that are afoot against the British Columbia government over this. Uh, joining me on the line now is Charlene Lebeau, who is a lawyer with the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. And I should also just say, by way of disclosure, I actually sit on the board of the JCCF, though that, that had no bearing in uh, setting up this interview. And I always put that disclosure just so uh, everyone is aware of, of where I'm coming from in my support for the organization. Uh, but but I'll, I'll ask you, Charlene, what is the situation in, in BC now, first and foremost? Because I think there was a bit of confusion this week about whether the government was dropping the mandate or, or just amending how it's unfolding. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Right. Uh, thanks for having me, Andrew. Yes, the mandate is still in place for the uh, BC healthcare workers. So any healthcare worker who is employed uh, by a BC health authority is still required to show proof of having taken uh, two doses of an approved COVID-19 vaccine in order to be able to work. So this new order that Dr. Bonnie Henry issued on July the 14th, just this past Friday, 
um, essentially cancels uh, an order that she made on June 10th, 2022, about a year ago, that required regulated healthcare workers to provide proof of vaccination to their colleges. Um, so really, the that order impacted the um, those in private practice, not those that were employed by a, a BC Health Authority. Um, so that's very significant. So cancelling that order means that those regulated healthcare workers um, in private practice do not have to show um, or do not have to provide provide proof of vaccination to their colleges. So it doesn't impact our lawsuit. So I'm one of the lawyers on um, a lawsuit in which we're representing 11 uh, BC healthcare workers who were fired for not having taken the vaccine. Um, so that, that lawsuit is continuing and we have trial dates set for November of this year. Now, just to, how do they define vaccinated? Are they, is it a two dose definition or a, a booster definition? It's a two dose definition. There was some confusion in April of 2023. So April 6th, um, Dr. Bonnie Henry issued two new orders and we call them the hospital and community care order and the residential care order. And there was some confusion because people thought that she was changing it to, to require or, or changing the definition of fully vaccinated to um, mean three doses. But in fact, that's not, not accurate. Um, those April 6, 2023 orders, they um, still only require two doses um, of the vaccine. The, the, the order talks a lot about the booster and encourages people to get the booster and talks about how, how, you know, how good the booster is, um, but it doesn't require it. And uh, those orders also um, essentially captured two new groups of, of workers, not even healthcare workers, but those workers that enter um, health facilities such as uh, construction workers and occasional workers who do not have contact with patients. So it, before the April 6 orders were granted, uh, those two groups of workers did not, if they did not show proof of vaccination, they had to physically distance and wear masks. So that was an, an exemption in those orders. It wasn't called an exemption, but it, it, it was. that They were allowed to enter facilities without showing proof of vaccination and now that's those that's taken out of the orders so now those two groups of workers are included the, the just to talk about the doses for a moment here I, th this is so absurd because even if you take the government's own messaging around vaccine efficacy at face value which i i think is fraught with challenges but a healthcare worker who got their first dose in december of 2020 and maybe their second dose in, say, February of 2021, uh, has gone two and a half years without ever receiving any dose whatsoever of vaccine, which means the effectiveness of that vaccine, again, to use the government's own narrative, is zero. Neck is literally nothing. So the idea that that is a requirement to work in healthcare is absurd when if you got vaccinated in January of 2021 or 2022 20, even, you are less protected than an unvaccinated person who got COVID a month ago is. Yes, and that is one of our arguments for sure. 
so so what has the government done if anything in its submissions or uh in public comments to push back against this to basically defend the science of its mandate well they they're still repeating the the same mantra which is that um it the the vaccine is 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 safe and effective and you know essentially they're silent on i mean I guess they, they say they say two things. They do acknowledge that um, the vaccine efficacy wears off over time, or wanes quickly, really. But at the same time, they say that um, it reduces symptoms and that having two doses is certainly better than being unvaccinated. Um, but yes, you should get a booster as well. So those are the types of things that they say. I, I saw, I can't remember the exact number, but I, I know that the BC Nurses Union just a couple of months ago was talking about the nursing shortages in BC. And, and the problem was the ratio of, of healthcare workers to patients was uh, concerning and, and ultimately leading to a, a lack of, of adequate patient care. So uh, here we have a government that is uh, preventing people from working in its healthcare system. Well, the people in that system who are vaccinated, who've gone through the uh, protocols are saying, hey, we need more staff. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I mean, you, you'll hear Adrian Dix say, you know, talk about how they're bringing in workers from overseas and they have a plan to increase the healthcare workers by, you know, certain numbers. But yeah, I mean, the fact is that there is a serious healthcare shortage and they talk about how they're going to fix it, but it's still, you know, a real problem. What is the, the basis of the argument here? Because I, I know there's always been a, a bit of a question about uh, the best avenue to challenge some of these mandates, whether it's on constitutional grounds or, or through other means. So are, what, what's the, if you can, as much as you can divulge anyway, what's the strategy that you're taking with your challenges? Yes, well, part of the, the challenge is based on constitutional grounds, that it's a violation of constitutional rights. Um, so, yeah, so that's one basis. But, you know, we're also looking at and challenging the science. So the efficacy of the vaccine and um, also uh, adverse reactions and things like that. So we're looking at the science and we're definitely incorporating that into our argument. One of the big things, and this has come up when we've talked about uh, vaccine mandates in other sectors as well, whether it's the federal public service vaccine or uh, the air, airline employee vaccine and, and whatever the case is, that, you know, there are a few different categories of people here. There are those who say, you know what, I'm not going along with this and therefore they lose their job or they get laid off or fired. They're victims of this. I, I would also say the people that, that get vaccinated against their will to keep their job are victims of, of this as well. And, and I don't know how you quantify that number, but there's a large group here of people that were literally coerced into this and are still being coerced into this because uh, this is the only way they get to do what, for many of them, has been a lifelong, a lifelong calling working in healthcare. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, it, very, it does look like coercion, absolutely. But the government's answer to that is it's a choice. It's still a choice. You're not, it's actually not a mandate is what they're saying. It's a choice. So, I mean, it, it, it really looks like a coercion, um, but technically it's still a choice. And, and, and the thing is, is that um, the right to work is not a, a protected under the constitution. Mm -hmm. 
how were how have the i mean i'm i'm assuming i know the answer to this but i'm curious to hear your uh the way you describe it here how has the how have the hospitals how has the healthcare system been on exemptions because i I know that technically you know people can uh claim a religious exemption or a medical exemption to these things under human rights laws but i i know that these have been uh next to impossible for for people to get reliably in other provinces when they've had these mandates in place well so the orders um actually do not allow for any exemption other than a medical exemption so the so naughty they don't even allow the religious uh, conscientious exemption wow no no that's right and the medical exemption really is just the the criteria is it's just such a narrow um exemption that essentially nobody qualifies you know so um the exemptions require that you either have to have taken a one dose i mean there's a there's a whole list but essentially you have to have taken a dose and been um you know had a severe allergic reaction almost died you know gotten really ill from the first dose and and, and the exemptions really are not ex- true exemptions they're really just deferrals so very few people have qualified just to drill into that point, so someone could have a, a very good relationship with their family doctor, and the family doctor could be uh, very pro-vaccine and say, you know, in your case, I think you might have an issue with this vaccine because of X. And that person might actually have to go through that issue before that medical advice qualifies them for an exemption. Well, yes, and first they have to go to an allergist to get that opinion. And the thing is also is many medical professionals were very reluctant to to get involved in you know to provide those kinds of letters requesting exemptions so it's very difficult yeah very difficult for people to um to obtain that exemption i i don't have much time for the the bc human rights tribunal but i i know that it is a a body that does have a, a fair bit of power on these things so how has it not uh become involved in this when you have uh, exemptions that, as I understand, should be protected under human rights law, at least, that aren't being respected by the mandate. Yeah, I don't know of any um, cases at present that are being hmm. handled. Yeah. So. Interesting. And again, I, I mean, the, the challenge with that body is that yeah, I, I feel it more often works against individual choice than for it. But uh, from what you had just said, which I, I didn't know, that the BC mandates uh, for healthcare workers don't even allow for the human rights exemptions that other provinces at least claim to. I, I found that quite shocking. So uh, just looking me. forward here, I mean, we, we've seen in some of the COVID cases that have come up in different provinces, uh, a fair bit of deference from courts to governments. And I, I'm wondering if you're ex- if you're expecting in BC to have a similar challenge afoot, or if maybe the courts in British Columbia have been somewhat better on this in your view. I don't think so. No, the courts have been pretty consistent across Canada in deferring to the government and the government science. So just a little bit more about our case. Um, Many of our petitioners were administrative workers or who worked remotely anyway, not even due to the pandemic. And so uh, one of our arguments is that the, the orders are overbroad because they are impacting, you know, so these these workers were fired for not taking the vaccine and yet they worked in administrative positions and or... So they, so they in- weren't at a risk of infecting a patient, which is basically the argument the government used to justify these things. That's right. 
explain to me if you can, and I, I mean, I know it's difficult to explain the, the inexplicable, but uh, how the government ha has, ba to, to back up here, what it seems like is that the government is trying to filter out a type of person that it doesn't want working for it more than it's trying to prevent against any risk. And I, I'm wondering if I, I'm being perhaps too cynical there, or if that would align with, with your perspective on this, having now studied this file so extensively. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, they want a certain type of worker. Yeah. So in this particular case, you have a, a mandate that really serves to just say, you know, you're, you're either on this side of the debate or you're on this side of the debate. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I appreciate very much you chatting about this. I, I know we'll cover this uh, up in November when the trial comes. Uh, joining me now is a lawyer for the JCCF, Char Charlene LeBeau. Charlene, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And again, I just uh, say so that no one can accuse me of uh, going too soft on uh, Charlene and the JCCF. I'm on the board of that organization. But uh, again, I was interviewing their folks and talking about their cases before I joined the board and uh, presumably will do so after I leave whenever that time comes. But uh, I haven't been fired just yet, which is uh, if, if you get fired from a volunteer position, I think you have to be uh, really doing something quite wrong here. Uh, just uh, in, in, funnily enough, uh, on the note of mandates, I don't know if you've ever been to In-N-Out Burger. I've never been because when I'm in like the southern U.S., my go-to is Chick-fil-A. That's like I was in uh, Tennessee recently and literally first thing I did before leaving the airport, got to go to Chick-fil-A. Uh, so I haven't been to In-N-Out Burger, uh, but people in the U.S. seem to love it. I've got friends in the U.S. that love it. Uh, In-N-Out Burger has put a mask mandate in place. Now, before you go against In-N-Out Burger, you should learn it's actually a no-mask mandate. They've actually banned employees in five states from wearing masks and they say, if you want to wear a mask at work, you need a letter from your doctor saying you must. So this is Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, Texas, and Utah. Starting August 14th, no masks allowed. Now, uh, this is not something, Starbucks is like the one place. If you go to a Starbucks, you're going to see lots of people that are wearing masks, uh, no matter where you go. Like young, healthy, vibrant people in the prime of their lives will wear their masks because it's like a status symbol to some of these folks. But uh, if you're looking for a, a burger in Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, Texas, or Utah, uh, you won't have any masks getting in the way of the ordering process at uh, In-N-Out Burger. Might as well uh, uh, just go there while you still can. I'm sure Biden will find some way to shut them down. Anyway, that does it for us for today. We will talk to you all on Friday with another special edition of the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.